Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Dear listeners, we are running up on the Christmas season, which is, after all, a season of giving. So what better time is there to talk about what companies ought to give to their shareholders? And to do exactly this, we are joined by Dr. David McLean, the chair of finance at Georgetown University, who has an excellent new book out called The Case for Shareholder Capitalism which is also, coincidentally, an excellent Christmas gift for anybody on your list. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. McLean. Uh, Great. uh, Thanks a lot for having me here. Great to be here. (laughs) Of course. Looking forward to it. So I'm still waiting for uh, my copy. It's in the mail, of course. But um, I was able to peek open a little bit. And um, I want to start pretty much where you started. And that is discussing the notion of profit. I think oftentimes, if you just grab somebody on the street, you ask them, um, what's the difference between a company that makes profit and one that doesn't? And you're going to get some version of um, one company is using fraud or coercion right. or is beating their consumers or suppliers in order to extract profits. And mm-hmm. you don't typically get a positive association with um, large profits. So is that a correct and incorrect characterization? Um, what is profit and uh, why do we like it? Yeah, I think so. I think profit is it's it's widely kind of misunderstood. Um, and so, first of all, when we say profit, like in capitalism or in shareholder capitalism, we mean without fraud, fraud or deception, and also um, you know obeying all laws and regulations and things like that. So, for example, you know robbing a bank that's not really consistent with making a profit. Um, the bank robber is better off, but the bank is is, is kind of worse off. So, <clears throat> profit doesn't mean making yourself better off. At the expense of others, what profit really means <clears throat> is you engage in. So yeah, that, 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 that's not what we <clears throat> mean by making profit. Um, so what a profit's supposed to reflect is it's it's the outcome of uh, of mutually beneficial trading. And so what do I mean by that? So let's just consider your your typical business. Um, I actually tell students that profit is just a leftover that a business gets to keep after it's uh, made all its other stakeholders better off. And so what I mean by that, so just think about your, your typical business. Um, uh, so if it wants to generate a profit, the first thing it needs to do is its customers need to buy its products. And so what, why would why would a customer buy a product from a particular business? Um, you buy a product because it makes a customer better off. Um, a customer isn't forced to do anything, right? In a, in a free society and free enterprise, customers don't have to buy, buy anything. So say if someone goes into Starbucks and buys a cup of coffee every day, it's because the value that they place on that cup of coffee is greater than the price that, that Starbucks is charging them. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't go in and interact with Starbucks that way. Um, people have to work at Starbucks or most other businesses have employees. And so why, do the, why does the employee choose to work there? Well, the employee chooses to work there because uh, what the employer is offering them in terms of wages, work conditions and everything else um, is, is a, a value to the employee. And, and probably more valuable than what, what anyone else is willing to pay them. Um, so an employee chooses to work somewhere because, you know, they get something in exchange of the wage that's of value to them. Um, that you can think about suppliers. Like, so a company like Starbucks has suppliers. Well, why do suppliers supply, you know, coffee and cups and other things to Starbucks? Well, because when Starbucks buys those things for them, it creates a profit for, for, for the supplier. So what a business is really doing, and we can call, you know, the employee, the customer, the suppliers, those are the business's stakeholders. So what we can say a business is doing is it's engaging in this mutually beneficial trading with each of its stakeholders. The stakeholders don't have to trade with the business. And in fact, m- most businesses don't last, right? Most businesses, they start and they go out of business. 
So it's not as if you can go into business and just start commanding profits. So a business makes a profit because it engages in mutually beneficial trading with its stakeholders who are free at any time to not tra to stop trading with the business. Um, and so after doing all that mutually beneficial trading and paying whatever taxes are due and obeying all laws and regulations, what's left over is, is called a profit. And a profit just reflects the fact that the, the trading was also, also mutually beneficial for the, for the business, for the, owner and for the owners of the business. Um, because, you know, businesses don't just pop into existence and start doing things. A business is really just a person or, or group of people who specializes in trading a particular good or service. And mutually beneficial trading means, yes, the trading is good for the customer, but it's also good for the business owner. And it's good for the, the employee, but also for the business owner. And it's good for the supplier and also good for the business owner. So the profit just reflects the fact that the trading was mutually beneficial and the business owner had had something to, to gain from it. Um, and I think that's that's kind of widely, I think, misunderstood. People think that businesses are like there's some zero sum game being played where the business owner's gain comes at the expense of the other stakeholders. Whereas in reality, the business owners, they're not, you're not competing with the other stakeholders. You're actually kind of cooperating with them. That's what mutually beneficial trading is, is we, we agree to exchange something and both sides are, are, are left uh, better off. Um, and th that's what I think the essence of capitalism is. And so when we say shareholder capitalism, all we mean is that it's okay for business owners to have that profit motive, that it's okay for them to run a business with the goal of trying to earn a profit because, of course, to earn a profit, you have to make all these other people in society better off. Otherwise, they stop trading with you and you have no profits. Perfect. I love that explanation. I, I would remind listeners that um, you define it as the leftovers after first benefiting the suppliers, the customers, the employees, all of these people. So in order to reach a state where you're actually making profits, you actually have to go through and benefit each one of those group of so-called stakeholders first already. Um, so how does that differ from the idea of a, a shareholder, a stakeholder capitalism model? Sounds like you're saying that we should have a world where um, suppliers, customers, employees all get to receive a benefit. And then at the end, if there's leftovers, business owners should be able to benefit too. How does that differ from what's being pushed currently amongst those promoting stakeholder capitalism? Yeah. So I think it's, it's, it's actually hard to tell because they don't really offer up any clear decision rules. So I guess what shareholder capitalism would say is that, so let's say you have a, a corporate manager. Is it, so shareholder capitalism would say, so the corporate manager works for their shareholders and, and their job is to, is to make the business as valuable as possible. So just like a customer shouldn't buy something from a, a business if the, if, if the customer doesn't think it will make them better off. So to a business shouldn't be selling things to customers if they don't think it creates a profit and makes a business owner better off, right? So just like an employee uh, shouldn't work for a business if the employee thinks they can go somewhere and get something better. But so too, if, if an employee's labor doesn't, doesn't create value for the business, you know, after accounting for the wage, then the business shouldn't have to be keep trading with, with, with that employee. Um, if a supplier is supplying things at a price that the business can't use to make a profit, the business is free to not have that relation with the supplier. So shareholder capitalism, I, I think just very much says, you know, the supplier, the employee, the customer, they all independently decide if these trades make them better off. 
And so in a large, especially like a, a publicly traded corporation that can have thousands or even millions of shareholders located all, all around the world, if you include, you know, indirect and you know, people own, own businesses indirectly through mutual funds and things like that, those shareholders don't get to decide if trades make them better off. They hire corporate managers for that. So the corporate manager's job is to look out for the shareholders and make sure that the trading is mutually beneficial. So the, the, the corporate, and, by, and, and I mean, so the, the people you're trading with decide if the trades benefit them and the corporate manager's job is to decide if the trading also benefits the shareholders, the people that, that they work for. Um, under stakeholder capitalism, so I, I would say there's, there's, I think, two issues with it. The first is that it doesn't acknowledge the fact that, that for the firm to, to be successful, it has to engage in mutually beneficial trading. Right. So it kind of leaves that out. Right. So if you read like someone like Klaus Schwab, you know, like some of some of his writings on the topic, he'll talk about like, well, stakeholder capitalism recognizes that the purpose of the business is not just to serve shareholders. It has to serve other stakeholders, too. And what I would say in response to that, um, that's true, but that's always been the case. That's the case in shareholder capitalism. That's been the case for thousands of years, long before there was commerce, long before academics started making up names like shareholder capitalism and stakeholder capitalism for a business to create value for its owners it has to create value for the stakeholders or it doesn't have any stakeholders because the customers employees and other people can just not deal with the business so i think the first problem with stakeholder capitalism is, is that it kind of denies you know or at least it, it doesn't acknowledge that fact so for example like the business roundtable is this consortium of large business ceos um, they updated its statement on the purpose of a corporation in 2019 uh, to kind of reflect like a more stakeholder capitalism sound. And it said, you know, our prior statements always said the purpose of a business is to create, is to serve the shareholders. And, you know, that left out that really, you know, the, the new statement says that really we're trying to serve all our stakeholders too. And so what I would say in response to that, so the business roundtable businesses, and a lot of them were inherited by these CEOs, you know, collectively they have $20 million in revenue. Uh, if you have $20 million in revenue, then obviously you're serving your customers pretty well, or they wouldn't buy, I'm sorry, 20 trillion, collectively 20 trillion. Wow. Yeah, they wouldn't, you wouldn't have $20 trillion in revenues if, if you weren't making your customers better off because they wouldn't buy your stuff. Um, they have 7 million employees. Well, you wouldn't have 7 million employees if you didn't make them better off. And so what I think it, what, what it kind of does, I think, and I think why some CEOs and other people like stakeholder capitalism so in shareholder capitalism, you have this kind of firm rule, which is that the, the, the management, the corporate managers work for the shareholders, and you don't use corporate assets unless it makes the shareholders better off. In stakeholder capitalism, you don't have that rule. So it's almost as if as long as you can say you're making some stakeholder somewhere better off, then you can justify like a spending and investment decision. So shareholder capitalism says you only spend the corporate corporation's resources if it's going to create value for the shareholders, which has to be done by also creating value for other people. But if it doesn't also create value for the shareholders, don't do it. Stakeholder capitalism kind of unleashes the, the, the corporate manager from that. So they can spend the money on almost anything they want because you can always claim that your spending made some stakeholder somewhere better off or made society better off or, or something like that. So I think it, it kind of, I, I think the difference is just it, it and, and when I read the stakeholder capitalism things, they don't really offer like a clear decision rule. Shareholder capitalism does. And I think what it does is it just kind of lets corporate managers do whatever they want with with, with corporate assets, more or less. Rather so, than, yeah, sorry. Yep. 
Uh, just a legal question here yeah. is th they have a fiduciary responsibility. So they have a responsibility to use these resources for the sake of the you know, people who own them. Right? right. Like, how is that? I mean, how is that legal? Have there been legal changes? Is it because the board collectively has already agreed to this? So they're kind of free to do this. Yeah. How, is, how does this work? Because, you know, it doesn't seem like it would be in line with their legal responsibilities to just use company funds to care for whatever objectives they want that aren't necessarily their customers or shareholders objectives. Um, you know, things that come to mind, say, caring for the environment. Mm -hmm. How exactly is it legal for a company to take company funds to pursue, say, a green objective by by funding some type of initiative? Mm -hmm. Is it legal? So. Uh, one, I'm, so I'm not a lawyer, but I'll, I'll give you my best, my best understanding of it. So corporate directors are protected by something called the business judgment rule. And the, what, I think what the base, business judgment rule basically says is that um, they're, they're basically given the, the benefit of the doubt that when they made decisions, they, their business judgment rule basically says when, when you make a business, so if someone wants to come and, and, and sue a corporate manager over a bad business decision. Um, they have to show that beforehand when they made the decision and, and the directors made the decision that they were somehow uninformed or they had a bad intention or, or something like that. So it's not, it's not like so cut and dry that you can just look at every spending decision and say, you're okay to do this. You're, you're, you're not okay to do that. So a director could possibly say, or a manager could say, Yes. And actually, increasingly, this is how people defend ESG. Like, yes, I was putting money towards the environment, but like, this is actually what's best for my firm somehow. Like, this is good for our business. Um, eventually, like regulators will treat us better for, for this. So they kind of like can, can make up different reasons, maybe after the fact about why, how they did, you know, it might actually be good, good for their shareholders. But my understanding is that showing that a business did a decision that harmed shareholders it's, it's just not so easy because the business judgment rule gives them gives them lots of discretion over how they run the business. And I think originally it's well attention because businesses take all types of risk. And sometimes when you take risk, it doesn't work out after the fact. And so you don't want directors and, 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 and CEOs and getting sued every time a firm makes a bad decision and you know, ex post and things don't work out. But I think that also gives them a lot of discretion to kind of pursue, at least up to some to some extent, uh, these various types of corporate social responsibility um, gotcha. initiatives. So I want to give a little bit of pushback here. So mm -hmm. you described earlier that we already have stakeholders benefiting all along the way. However, I can imagine someone saying, yeah, 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 but you didn't really name all of the stakeholders. Mm -hmm. There are certain groups which might not necessarily um, benefit from the way that you described. For instance, okay. there are the people who live in the environment in the future. So don't we have some type of responsibility to them? And we haven't benefited them because they might not exist yet. They're the next generation. So ought not a company pursue some environmental goals? And we also have society in general, right? Mm -hmm. um, they might not have necessarily purchased the, the product, but don't we have a some type of responsibility to be a good a good corporate citizen to empower society writ large or even the global poor maybe they haven't purchased something yet but 
development in other countries, um, lifting them out of poverty. Sure. Well, well, that could be good in general, maybe mm-hmm. even for the company. So what about those stakeholders? Is stakeholder capitalism better at helping out the environment, society, the global poor? Yeah, well, I guess that, that somewhat depends how you ask. So <clears throat> who, who, who you ask. So I would say with, with shareholder capitalism, so let, let's just take like the environment, right? So firm, you know, when, a, when businesses sometimes, uh, you know, they, they generate pollution, right? And so that's a negative externality. So like you said, these stakeholders who are benefiting by trading with the business, you know, there might be other people that have nothing to do with the business, but they still have to suffer from, from the pollution of the business. Um, and so the way we typically handle that is, 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 is through government regulation. Um, so it's not as if a business can go and do whatever it wants environmentally or treat its employees however it wants and just it's only the marketplace. So um, currently, just to give you like an idea of, of how strong regulation is, and this is from the New York Times, right? Um, in 2017, they had an article on how much regulation does an apple orchard face? So if, mm. if you, if, if you want to just run an apple orchard, in the, in, let's go to the federal, just the federal code of regulation. How many rules and restrictions are there to run an apple orchard? And to find the answer, nobody can actually read through the federal code of regulation because it's too long. Good night. So they had to make a computer algorithm to search through it. And they fa- the number I think they came up with is 12,500. Wow. So there's 5,000 that were written just for apple orchards, but there's another 7,500 that would apply to orchards, if I'm remembering my numbers right, they're in the book, that, that could impact other business too. Um, the most prolific regulatory agency, at, so in total, there's a, a million federal regulations. The most prolific is the Environmental Protection Agency. So I think they came into existence in the 70s and they issue about 3,000 regulations a year. And remember, each regulation mm-hmm. can have hundreds of rules. So it's, it's so the case for shareholders. So it's, 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 it's not as if businesses can just pollute and do whatever they want and, and treat employees however they want. We already have a, a huge amount of rules they have to follow. And what the stakeholder corporate responsibility people, I, I, I would argue what they're really doing is they want a different set of rules, probably more strict than the rules that are already given to us by, 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 by regulation, by government. And so what they're trying to do in some cases is become like de facto rule makers. So the government says you have these environmental regulations, they want stricter regulations. And of course, regulations always create a trade-off, right? If we have stricter environmental standards, those things can be costly. And so because they're costly, we, we might get a less vibrant economy. We might get you know fewer jobs, more expensive goods and services, and so on. Um, that doesn't mean they're wrong. I'm just saying that there's a trade-off. And typically the way we decide on what trade-off we want between regulation and business activity is, you know, we elect, we have elected officials, they establish and oversee the, the, the regulators, uh, they pass laws, and then the regulators make regulation. I, I'm not saying that works perfectly. There's a lot of messiness with that, but at least it stems from election. And at least if we think things are going crazy, we can elect different people to change it. Um, when corporate social responsibility kind of becomes the regulation, uh, the problem is like we didn't different people can have very different views on what's a good environmental standard, what represents a corporate, you know, a socially responsible firm and which doesn't. Um, and th- those people like the, like a Klaus Schwab or like a Larry Fink, he's the CEO of BlackRock. He's a big you know, advocate of some of these things. You know, Klaus Schwab at the, at the World Economic Forum. 
they don't stand for election. We didn't elect them. So if they start setting the environmental standards and you don't like the standards, there's really nothing you can do about it. Um, at least if you don't like the regulations that government set, sets, I mean, you can at least try to vote, vote for people who might bring in, bring in different standards. So I, I think one way you can review this whole corporate social responsibility thing is just a, a certain class of people think that they deserve to have a, a kind of like a, a greater voice and outsized role in determining our regulation. And then they're in some cases trying to replace government regulation with with their with their own set of regulation, um, and that's that's what I think the problem. So I'm not advocating, and I kind of agree with you, like your pushback. Yeah, yeah, the firms do create externalities, and it's not unreasonable that government might regulate some of them. I mean, no one wants toxic waste dumped in rivers and lakes. So it's, it's not it's not a, the case for shareholder capitalism. It's not really a case like an anti-regulation case. It's just saying regulation should come from government that was elected by people. It shouldn't come from unelected people who just decided to appoint themselves spokesmen for society and issuing these kind of de facto regulations. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, you, just the way that we're kind of framing this might kind of surprise people. Normally, what you hear a more free market case, I think we're both quite free market. Yeah. And it always sounds like, well, we want distributed decision making. Um, competition and a variety of different um, solutions. Um, we're not really big fans of one size fits all government stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, we would prefer an economic process to a political process. But what, what you outlined there, it kind of sounds like the reverse. We're saying we already have a one size fits all government um, process for regulating things like the environment. And we think that maybe you can nuance this or whatever you'd like, but is that really better going through a political process to get a one size fits all government solution than imagine a world where we didn't have all those regulations because each company acted according to what it believed was best, uh, say for the environment. We'll use that as an example. Okay. And then they competed in how they sought to uh, benefit the environment. Consumers then chose to purchase or not purchase products based on how they perceive the efficacy of that that company's um, stewardship of the environment. Mm -hmm. Now we let a thousand flowers bloom. We we allow companies to build reputations for being prudent governors of mm -hmm. not only their shareholder resources but also the environment, the global poor, etc. And then we don't have to rely on a one size fits all political process. Um, maybe we do have a voice and that we can choose to. Um, drive up the, the value of that corporation by by buying some of it if we believe in its ability to to maintain this reputation power and thereby command profits into the future. Um, we could benefit these companies by purchasing their products because we think that they're they're better overall. Mm -hmm. um, what, what do you think about that? Do you think that what what you're laying out is more top down or not? Do you think yeah. that the paradigm I I laid out is actually at all stable or that or that maybe people would be fooled into thinking that somebody's reputation is better than the other. So yeah, just reflect on that if you can, I'd be interested. Yeah, no. So first of all, I, I guess I, yeah. So I don't, I don't disagree. I guess I, I agree with, with what you said. So I think if a company, um, and in this case, it could, it could be like a marketing expense, like a company, we're going to spend more on environmental things because we think our customers that'll make our customers will, will want to buy more of our products. And, and, and there it's actually like you're, you're actually increasing shareholder value, but, but by actually doing that. Right. So it's like, like, a you know, uh, so uh, you can think of like um, a company that sells outdoor clothing. 
and they give some percentage of their profit to environmental causes, and that makes people want to buy more of their products. Um, and so they're actually increasing shareholder value by doing that. And yeah, I, I think that's great. I don't, I, I don't, I don't have any problem with that. Um, where, where I, where I think, but I, I think unfortunately there's something else going on um, that's 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 not exactly that. And so, and it has to do with with corporate voting. I guess this is I should have gone into it a little more. But yeah, the scenario that, that you laid out, I don't, I don't really have problem with, with with that at all. I don't think, and I don't think that's at odds with with shareholder capital. Um, so what's been going on is most people. So when you so okay when a, when a, when people invest in publicly traded corporations um, and you have a share of stock, the share of stock allows you to vote on things. So one thing you can do is you can elect a board of directors, and what the board gets to do is they they supervise the management. They hire the CEO and the other corporate managers. Uh, they decide on major decisions like M and A and things like that. Um, and when major decisions come up, people who own shares get to vote too. So corporations are supposed to be governed governed like republics, where you have um, you know at the top you have like the voters, and then the voters elect the board of directors, um, which are like the politicians, and then the board of directors oversee the management, which are which are like the, the, the bureaucrats and the, the federal agencies. Now, most people, though, and this is increasingly so, don't own their shares in the companies directly. They own them through different investment companies. So, for example, I don't own any shares directly. I own all the shares through Vanguard index funds. That's so that means when corporate voting comes up, like for a board of directors or in some important business decision, I don't do the voting. Vanguard does the voting. And so what's happened is that, um, and this is particular, this give you a very salient example with, 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 with global warming, right? So with global warming, uh, um, there is a, something called the Paris Accord, which was to, and, and the goal of the Paris Accord was to get governments to agree that we would limit our CO2 emissions to, to get to net zero CO2 emissions by the year 2050. Um, and as it is right now, that's not like a, a U.S. regulation or, or, or law or anything like that. So it's, it's not a rule right now that anywhere that says a U.S. corporation has to get their CO2 emissions to zero by 2050. And I, I believe the reason it isn't a regulation is because most voters don't want that. That's actually a very, very expensive thing to do. Um, and the cost of doing that, at least in the near term, are, are likely, and there's pretty good research that I discussed in the book, much higher than any cost from global warming. So we don't have that regulation because the typical voter doesn't want that regulation. So what some of the major fund companies have done is they've got together with the UN and they formed consortiums and the consortiums are to try to uh, pressure corporations to adhere to the Paris Accord and they can get their CO2 emissions down to net zero by the year 2050. Um, and so the one of the, uh, the uh, asset managers that helped found so the largest asset manager in the world is BlackRock, and it's a founding member of a couple of these consortiums. So what the consortiums are doing, and they're doing this. So, so again, like we all invest in. So most Americans, so we all invest in like in mutual funds and in index funds. And why we're investing those things is to get the get a high financial return. What that means is the fund managers get to do the corporate voting. So they get to elect the board of directors. They get to vote on major corporate policies. And so what a lot of them have done is they've gone included and said, look, what we're going to do is pressure all the businesses that we were invested in because we to, to do the voting to adhere not to U.S. environmental policy, 
which says you don't have to get to net zero CO2 emissions by 2050, but to this Paris Accord that we favor and, and that the UN favors. And to the extent that they're successful with that, now what we've done is, 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 is you, you know, to the extent that that, that that actually happens, and I mean, publicly traded corporations are pretty big and important. And, and so what some of these accords say is not only get the, your CO2 emissions down to net zero, but like your customers and anyone you might be dealing with also. So that can have a really big effect across the economy. So now instead of having a particular policy on, on CO2 emissions that, that voters would have wanted, um, we've replaced that with what the, you know, the UN wants and, and what fund managers want. And the problem with that, not only, even if you agree with that stance on CO2 emissions, if they can do that with CO2 emissions, they can do that with, with lots of other things too, with lots of other social and environmental policies. So that's, that's where I think kind of the, the, some of the danger or problems in this become where if, um, you know, you have all, all the fund companies or even all the corporate managers adhering to a particular ideology then that ideology, you know, that particular, the goals of that ideology can kind of overrule what, what voters want and what, what, what people have kind of voted for. Good. I, yeah, I, I like how you made that distinction there. So we're, so basically there's one side which says what you just critiqued was private groups with private priorities, typically ideological, yes. pushing publicly traded companies to achieve their own private goals on behalf, supposedly, of humanity, completely outside of any political or public or process whereby an ordinary person could influence this, and in, in a way which destroys profitability, which is in and of itself a public benefit. Um, and you said, so this is, that's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. A small consortium of people uh, using their power, typically their management powers to vote shares for their private objectives. But what you're not condemning is, let's say, um, using, using charity at a corporate level in order to promote one's brand. You know, there's not that much of a difference between Starbucks spending money on marketing to make you feel all all warm and glowing in your heart with your your red starbucks cup mm -hmm. for the season seeing all the commercials the snow falling and people sipping lattes and them saying now our cups are i don't know made out of bamboo harvested by fair trade carbon neutral polar bears or polar bears right. panda bears yeah. um if if both of those makes you feel more satisfied with your purchase then Either one of those solutions, be it the marketing campaign of the red cups or the bamboo panda bear harvested cups, if they make you like your latte more, right. then that's a success. So we're not saying that building in charity into your brand to kind of increase the value of that intangible aspect of a product is bad. Mm -hmm. That's a decision which could be perfectly reasonable. And I like your example of those outdoor brands. You know, we're trying to tap into the ethos of the outdoor sportsman. You might want some money going to, uh, say, some conservation activities, and that might be valuable to him or her. But we don't want ideological stuff foisted in a private way, uh, typically in a way that that's that's not even accessible uh, for us to even see. Exactly. Um, yeah. By voting people's shares just because they, um, you know, they sought to have Vanguard, BlackRock, or or what is State Street, or another large firm. So I, I think that's a very important distinction there. Um, do you want to comment on 
why is it that it seems that all these groups seem to have the same ideology? I, I don't know if any, it's not like vanguards over there saying we want uh, free markets and, and good, strong rule of law. And we <laughs> like, it seems that it's, it's only a one size fits all solution. It's typically um, climate change, maybe some gender ideology thrown in there, um, redistributionist yeah. policy. Why, why is it that it's just such a monolith in this group that you've described? I don't, I mean, that's a hard question. So one, and to Vanguard's credit, they've actually backed away. I think they pulled out of one of those consortiums. Awesome. Yeah, because people made the point, look, you can't both be trying to get your share. So they actually have a fiduciary obligation to get their shareholders the highest possible financial return. And you can't do that and be trying to get the companies that you're investing in to reduce CO2 emissions. Like they're kind of not consistent. And so, um, and they're actually, you might have seen in the news, um, the state of Tennessee just filed a lawsuit against BlackRock, the world's largest fund manager, for for for, for that reason. Um, that you know they invested. I think some of their pensions in in Tennessee invested with BlackRock, and BlackRock's off doing this political activism, and that came at the expense of the pensioners. Um, so, but any yeah, what why what why all the yeah? So I mean yeah, basically corporate social responsibility. Yeah, usually it, especially with the fund managers, it it pursues very progressive tends to pursue progressive causes. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, part of it might be that, um, um, you know, c conservatives tend to be more in line with free markets and think just the pursuit of profit in normal business is a good thing. So they don't need to co-op businesses to do these other things. Um, that, that might be part of it. Um, Another part of it is that I, I've read somewhere that finance, it, it used to be, most financiers used to be Republicans, but that's changed over recent years. Um, so finance is very clubby. They tend to, the financial institutions tend to hire from, I think, very elite schools. Elite schools have become more liberal over time. If you look at the geography of finance, it tends to be heavily in blue states and in blue cities where, where the larger asset managers are. And again, I don't want to like overly generalize here. I'm not saying anyone who went to a school like that or lives in a place like that thinks like a progressive, but maybe that 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 that, that does have some in influence. Um, but yeah, I think I think if you if, if you're right, if, if you look at the causes that, that the kind of corporate social responsibility things go after, it's usually progressive causes. And yeah, I think I think it, the reason of that is is its roots are. Um, it's probably rooted in because people have been been attacking corporations for a long time and it, it's always in, in capitalism for a long time and those attacks always come from usually the left and the left usually doesn't really like capitalism it doesn't really think that it's it's pursuing good things and so trying to replace at least some of what corporations normally do with progressive causes i guess i guess you know maybe gets people gets firms closer to what, what progressives would, 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 would like to have them doing. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I might, I guess the short answer is I don't totally know, but that, that's, I mean, maybe my explanation gives, sh sheds a little bit of light on, on what's going on here. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. So I kind of want to have you comment a little bit on um, uh, is specialization where it seems like, we've kind of forgot that specialization is an incredible tool 
for value creation. But that's not just true in the for-profit world. It's also true in the non-profit world. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to jam these things together. We seem to want companies, or many people seem to want companies, that operate um, creating value for their consumers, creating products, but also kind of like moonlighting as a non-profit charitable organization, be right. that environmentally or society or, or whatever. So can you defend how, um, or at least comment on how we might have a better world if we simply split these where companies pursue um, the maximum amount of uh, overall long-term firm value to maximize that, the, the, the uh, value of that, that income stream into the future. Mm -hmm. And then we, we have profitability going to say shareholders and shareholders are free and the employees who, who got those wages are free to dispose of that how they like. They could then choose the charity that they believe is, is the best, um, best use yeah. of their money to make the world a better place. Like, why is that not why is that not a salient solution to people? Why do people want to smash these two things together? Have we just kind of failed to explain how division of labor is useful? Yeah. Is there something else going on? Um, yeah. Yeah. Or, or that type of institution, like a nonprofit versus a corporation versus a government, right? You know, they, they're just good at doing different things. So actually what you're saying is part of my conclusion in, in, in the book is that like the case for capitalism or shareholder capitalism, it's not a case against other institutions. Right. So, I mean, I, I work at a nonprofit institution. Uh, Cato, the book publisher, is a nonprofit institution. So it's not, it's not like I'm against nonprofits. I just think nonprofits, like you said, do different things than corporations. So corporations are good at creating a business in general. The, po the point of a business is just to engage in mutually beneficial trading with stakeholders. Um, that makes the stakeholders better off, like I said. That creates profits for the business owners. They can then take that profits and, and, and do whatever they, they like with it. Um, does that solve every single problem that the world's ever going to have? No, but uh, having wealth can save can 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 solve a lot of problems because people can we can take that wealth and either through government or through nonprofits try to solve other problems that that the profit-seeking corporation won't won't uh, won't solve so well. Um, and actually, maybe this this relates a little bit to to your last question. And I don't want to get too ideological or political here, but I, I would say you know like. Um, a university's goal, like what's a university supposed to do? You know, a university is supposed to, we're supposed to do research to create new knowledge. And then we're supposed to take what we've learned from that research and teach it to other people so they can go out in the world and we have a more informed society and we can do good things. But I, I think certainly, you know, universities have become very ideological places too, where a lot of what goes on in, in, in universities is promoting progressive uh, ideology. Um, even public schools, like I have young kids in schools and a lot of what's going on there. I live in Fairfax County. It's been in the news quite a bit. A lot of what's going on in public schools, instead of just teaching kids math and science and reading, it's also bringing in some progressive ideology stuff and teaching that to young children. And so mm -hmm. it seems mm -hmm. like the left has a tendency to do this with, with every type of institution. And now it's just doing this with businesses where it kind of takes an institution that had one purpose and it co-ops it to to also serve this other purpose, which is what promoting whatever causes, you know, the, the, the left happens to be favoring right now. Um, you know, I, yeah. Oh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. And I was going to say the right and, and the fact that they're, that they're progressive or more left-wing causes, I'm not saying that's what makes them wrong or bad causes. It's just, what I don't like is the corrupting of the institution. 
So mm-hmm. I don't want to see conservatives doing that either. I think the you know a, 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 a university shouldn't be promoting conservative ideology. University shouldn't promote any ideology. We should be where because once you're promoting ology, then you can't be an honest broker of doing kind of scientific research and teaching because you have this other thing you're trying. And I think it's the same with corporations. And so when you do that, you just corrupt whatever that institution's supposed to do. And I think unfortunately the left has done that more than the right. And, and, and but yeah. Again, that's not criticizing leftist causes. Some of those can be good causes, but I, I don't like seeing the institution being corrupted. And I think the corporation is just the latest institution to be kind of targeted with this. You know, I have an analogy that I often use. It's it's called the um, what's called the most chocolatey chocolate cake fallacy. Okay. And uh, I, I've realized if you if you get a little kid and you just ask him and say, hey. How would you make the most chocolatey chocolate cake possible? Um, you always hear the same answer. You're gonna say, oh, I'd have chocolate frosting, and then I'd have I'd use dark chocolate and milk chocolate and white chocolate, and I'd use chocolate fudge, and I'd have chocolate chips. And then you say, Well, well, what's the most chocolatey flavor chocolate you've ever you've ever tried? And they might be able to answer and say, Why not make the whole cake out of that? And you get a blank stare of manifest confusion. And I feel like it, I get the same blank stare when I talk to some of these people who are, are pushing these competing objectives. They say, well, it's it, we're trying to make the most chocolatey chocolate cake. I'm taking the company. I want it to produce iPhones and help the poor and help the environment and do this and do that. And I have the same response is, well, what's the best thing? Which one? Why not make the whole company out of that? Like, like maybe it's true that this particular phone maker is really incredible at, I don't know, um, charitable operations overseas for the most poor. Well, maybe it needs to be a nonprofit. Oh, it is the best phone manufacturer. Well, just make the whole thing out of that then. Um, I think that I, I hope that most of the adults pushing this would understand how to make the most chocolatey chocolate cake. But when um, when they come to companies, it seems like they don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think it, uh, I'm just trying to think with, with, um, and, and especially with a lot of these things, like at least with the chocolate cake, at least people could kind of agree on like, what's the most chocolatey chocolate, but with something like an environmental standard or just a vague concept, like what's socially responsible that, you know, different people are going to have very, very different opinions on that. Right. So it's not, it's not, you know, so, uh, you know, what's good for the environment or, or what isn't good for the environment. I'm not sure that's objective. I think that's, that's, that's a pretty subjective thing. Um, and, and environmental things always create trade-offs. Um, humans are always going to have some impact on the environment. If you want to have no impact on the environment, then you're for human extinction. So as long right. as we're here, there, there's some impact. And so the, the question then just becomes over, over trade-off. Like how, how much impact do we want to have? If, if we reduce the impact, if we reduce environmental externalities, uh, it makes business harder to do. It makes us all a bit poorer. Um, and so we're to come down on those things. It's not, so I, I, I guess it bothers me with the corporate social responsibility people a little bit in the environment, you know, the business has to have sustainability or these other goals. They act as if there's a, there's a objective way to measure it. And then they act as if there's no trade-off with that. And so you're opening up a yeah. wonderful can of worms. Okay. I a hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. Yes, definitely. No, it's, um, you you know, I want to hear your opinion on, on a, on kind of a scenario. I want to, want you to lay out for the listeners, um, what you think it would look like if, um, 
let's say the stakeholder capitalism guys get their way. Um, we do get a division of priorities with companies. And let's say that cuts profitability in in half. Okay. Um, um, what's the world look like in the next 15 years? Uh, companies um, are pursuing a variety of, object- of objectives, as you've pointed out. M- many of them have um, unintended consequences. But let, let's go ahead and assume a very charitable reading that they're at least um, uh, uh, better than nothing when they they try to pursue these societal and and uh, global or, or environmental goals. What does it look like if that comes at the expense of half of uh, corporate profitability? Okay, so like a, a a quick answer then is that that the firm, I guess the, the the shares are worth half as much, right? So the value. So again, like we go back to like you know finance one hundred and one. Uh, what's the value of a business? So the value, we don't need to get so technical here, but the value of a business is just the present value of all its free cash flows. And free cash flows are driven by profit. So when you value a business, uh, the business is going to generate profits, you know, this year, next year, the year after that, some time off into the future. And we just, there's a way to just kind of do what we call take the present value. We don't need to get into what that is. But so profits drive free cash flow. We take the present value. That's the value of the business. Divide it by the number, subtract any debt, divide it by the number of shares outstanding, that's the stock price. So if you're going to cut profits in half, you're going to cut stock prices in half. Um, and where I think that can be a real problem is with firms that are coming public. So uh, here's, here's an interesting statistic, right? Like over the last 20 years, about a quarter of the companies that came public were biotech companies, okay? Of, so a quarter of the of the IPOs over the last 20 years, these are companies that become publicly traded corporations. Um, a quarter of them were biotech. 95% of them had negative profits and the majority of them had no sales. Right? So the typical company coming public that's a biotech firm is losing money and doesn't even have a finished product yet um, you know, because it, it has no sales. So an example of one of those was, was the company Moderna, right? That made the COVID vaccine. So when they came public, they didn't even have a, a finished product yet, um, but they still came, I think when they came public, they were worth $7 billion. And the reason they could be worth that much is because investors look at companies like this. And by the way, not all these companies have good outcomes, but investors say, well, a lot of these companies are gonna fail, but if one of them's successful like Moderna, I'm gonna have a huge return on, on, on my investment, right? So if one of these companies, like uh, also like looking at tech companies that came public um, over the last 20 years, 68% were losing money. These aren't biotech, just other tech. Um, and they had very low sales. So if I invest in these, yeah, a lot of them might not work out. But if there's one Tesla that had like an 11,000% return since its IPO at mm. the time I was writing the book, that can pay for a whole lot of failures. So people are willing to invest in companies like this, even though when they fail, you lose your investment. Because if at least one of them does well, you get to, you know, the, the shareholders do, do really well. The company is going to be worth lots of money. The shareholders do well. But if you want to play this game where, okay, uh, if you shareholders, if the company's a loser, you eat the loss. But if the company's a winner, you don't get to keep the gains. Those go and get put towards different social responsibility causes. Well, why would anyone invest in that? Right? Why would anyone want, want to? So, 
So then what happens if people aren't willing to invest in these companies, the, the Moderna that's coming public, it doesn't get its funding that it needs to keep surviving and developing the things it wants to develop. And we don't get the technical innovation that comes from these types of companies. Um, so like the most important, so just in general, like uh, tech, you know, uh, tech companies, companies that are highly innovative, um, uh, tend to not be very good for, for, for bank lending, right? So a lot of these companies early on, they're spending lots of money. They don't have any revenues because they don't have products. So they need lots of external funding. They're not very good at raising money from banks. Banks don't like to lend for them. For the obvious reason is if you lend, make a loan to someone, they have to pay you back at a, at a predetermined date. And for a company that's, that's young and developing something that's really innovative and it might not work out and they're not sure when they have some revenues, they can't be, they can't be borrowing money because they can't make those loans back. Uh, lenders like collateral, they like, you know, assets that, that, that the firm can post as collateral, like, you know, a, a real estate or equipment. And a lot of these very innovative firms don't have those things. So these firms rely, they're going to rely on shareholders for their funding. And shareholders are happy to fund them because uh, what's nice is you can take their ownership and, and, and break it up into millions of shares. So all of us can just invest a little bit of our wealth in these very risky companies. And when some of them sometimes pay off, we get a huge payoff. So a, a lot of these most innovative businesses need, need shareholders and, and need to be publicly traded to kind of get their funding. Um, before they become publicly traded, venture capitalists invest in them. But venture capitalists, a lot of, they're willing to do that because if the company's successful, it can have an IPO and the venture capitalist makes lots of money. So if we want to start playing this game where, okay, the profits don't belong to the shareholders, they belong to some you know, vague meaning of society, I think all that starts to fall apart. And we actually have evidence of that in other countries. In our country, we have very strong shareholder protection laws. And usually, so what can happen in other countries with weaker shareholder protection laws is that you can get one very large controlling shareholder, like a family that owns you know, 20, 30, 40% of the shares. So they can control the corporation. And they often do things that benefit themselves at the expense of the other small shareholders. So they might take profits from the company that they own 40% of, and transfer them to some other company that they own 90% of. And that comes at the expense of all the other shareholders and the company that they took the money from. So shareholders aren't stupid. So when you look at the stock markets of these other companies or of these other countries, they're very kind of undeveloped. The firms aren't worth that much. They have fewer publicly traded firms. They have fewer IPOs. They have less new firms, less creative destruction, all because uh, you know, shareholders don't want to fund things that, you know, they know when, when profits are generated, the profits don't come back to the shareholders because that's what, in, you know, that's what an investment is. I take some risk. If the risk doesn't work out, I lose money. But if it does work out, I get to keep the gains. And so what I worry about, like you said, in, in the next 50 years, um, th you know, this could be bad for the economy. And I think it could be bad for kind of like innovation and development and, and things like that. Because uh, if shareholders don't get to keep the gains when things are successful, then why would anyone want to be a shareholder? Um, it, it defeats the whole purpose. And then the other side I talk about um, too, is I would worry a little bit, again, I'm not a big fan of regulation, but if we're going to have regulation, like everyone wanting the same thing, I think it should come from elected officials. So I worry a little bit about these fund managers forming consortiums. Um, right now they're doing it with global warming, but you could imagine they could have other social causes and if a firm comes, let's say a firm comes public and the CEO speaks out against that social cause, um, you know, that firm could then be, be, be targeted. So I think that there's all types of things with not only just with business and the economy, but also just with uh, with how we kind of govern and regulate ourselves that 
that this these types of things could, could cause problems for. Well, I like the way you took that. It's going to crush innovation, and we're just not going to see companies that would have been there, that would have created enormous value for society. Exactly. Um, what about for groups like uh, retirees, the poor? What about for government um, revenues? What, what's it look like in that world where we have uh, have competing priorities and we've cut profitability in half? How does it affect those groups? Yeah. Well, I mean, like tomorrow, if, if you passed a law that profitability is cut in half, um, then I, I think everyone's shares are worth about are worth about half. Sure. So if you're, you know, if you're, you know, so if we said forever into the future, profits have to be half of what they are. Um, it makes everyone's shares about half. Another thing with with profitability, um, profitability. So at any point in time, society has scarce resources that have alternative uses. And profitability, when when firms seek profits, they help allocate resources into their most uh, valued use. So what I mean by that is you can think of a profit is the, the, a profit is just a difference of between what I can sell something for versus what it costs to make it. So if, if something, if a firm makes a profit, it means it took resources that society places a low value on and it created something that society places a high value on. And the difference between the resources of what's of, of what they made versus the resources that they used, that's, that's called a profit. So a profit it incentivizes firms to take things that society doesn't really that has like kind of like a lower value on and make things that society has a high value on, and we all want that. That benefits everyone, right? We, whether you're a shareholder or not, you 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 want that to kind of be happening. So profit seeking uh, does that, and then back to the innovation part, I think we now have very good understanding that for a developed economy to keep growing. And so economic growth means that over time, our living standards increase, our kids and grandkids live better than us. For a fully developed economy, that's growth is driven by technological innovation. If you keep making the same things in the same way, once you're a developed economy, you won't grow. So if you want economic growth, you, you need these highly innovative firms to just keep, keep popping up um, and, and becoming. So if you look at some of like the major companies that we have today that, that we like look in the S and P 500 or think about like a Google, like a Microsoft, a Tesla an Apple, like when I was, when I was, a, you know, when I was born, when I was young, I'm 50 now, these, these weren't even, nobody had even heard of these things. Um, and so what, what would be nice, my kids are young is that when they're my age, all the important companies are companies that, that they never heard of when they were kids because they represent new technologies and new innovations. And, but I think the only way you get that is I think you need to have shareholders that are willing to fund this stuff because innovating right. is, is really risky. There's going to be lots of losers and you need a system. You need a system that allows for lots of failure where the success can pay for all the failure. And, and that's what our what our system, I, I think, does a good job of. So we want we want more of that. Perfect. So what we're advocating is is a system whereby resources are put to the highest valued use. Mm -hmm. And the alternative to that is actually waste. And yeah. as you described, if we're dropping profitability, we're going to slash the value of people's retirement accounts. And if we have a huge drop in profitability, we're going to have slower growth in the economy, which means government revenues are going to be much smaller into yep. the future. Debt's going to be more difficult to service. We could have to hit our austerity. Um, all those companies that pop up and have the potential to be extraordinarily profitable are going to benefit many stakeholders along the way, as you said at the top of the episode, meaning if we slash profitability, we're going to slash opportunity for good employment, for the deployment of talent. Um, that's going to hurt 
the poor, the middle class, people who have something to offer to society if a structure is created in which their labor can be uh, deployed at a high value use. So, yeah, I think that the, the future looks a lot better if we have uh, if we have shareholder capitalism. I, I don't think it's fair to to um, use the typical straw man arguments whereby it's all about fraud. You described earlier how profit is not um money that's made from fraud that's not profitability it's not made from coercion these are free voluntary transactions um which rely on benefit to um both parties um so yeah i think you made your case well uh do you want to end with um kind of your your elevator pitch maybe taking more of a a moral angle uh, particularly people 20s 30s they're they're persuaded not so much by the economy will grow at a faster rate but it's what seems to be most salient for them are moral issues issues of justice or equality or equity or whatever the 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 buzzword is now so can you make a kind of a closing argument why this is a more moral case why this this uh this is something that we should support if we are good people if you will um, this is a moral case. Yeah, let's see if I can a nice way to kind of summarize that. Um, so I would say just with you know, getting you know, shareholder capitalism is I you know just I think you know, the the broader sphere of just just capitalism, right? And so what what is you know capitalism is is just letting people engage in mutually beneficial trading or not. So you get to trade, you get to decide where you want to work, you get to decide what goods and services you want to consume. And so when we when we say capitalism, all we really mean is is giving you that as an individual that type of freedom of choice. So unfortunately, in schools, we we kind of don't teach maybe our, our history so well, in particular economic history. But if you went back to the beginning of the you know, early 1900s, everyone thought capitalism—not everyone, but a lot of like the intellectual class—thought capitalism would fail. They thought communism was the only answer. Um, a number of nations went down that route. And, and so in communism, we, you know, we don't have firms seeking profits. Individuals don't get to make the choices they want in the marketplace. You have a central planner and the central planner kind of tells everyone what to do. And there's lots of equity. Everyone's, everyone's equitable. Uh, you know, we all kind of consume the same. And, you know, those, the countries that went down that, they're, 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 there's no example of a successful company that, a country that tried that. I think there's more than there was more than 30. Um, so not only did they fail, like like just economically, were they basket cases, but it, it ended up in totalitarianism, because when you have like a central planner that controls everything and says everything, you know, everyone needs to be equal and they control the economy, uh, then you're no longer you no longer have a free society. Um, and I think collectively, there's a couple estimates. It depends who you want. But the communist governments probably killed at least 100 million of their own people. Um, I talk a little bit about in the book about China's experiment with communism. Uh, one of the books that I, I, I cite from China, it's called Mao's Famine, that when China China tried to control its its economy and it tried to industrialize the countryside, that they killed 46 million of their own people. I don't mm. know how that's ethical. And then in the 80s, China said, well, let, let's adopt capitalism. Let's at least some, some amount of capitalism, right? So Mao, Mao died, Mao went out of power, Deng Xiaoping took over, he reformed China. And they had the, the greatest explosion in economic growth ever. They pulled more people out of poverty than ever in the history of the world. Um, actually, if you look at 
since the 1970s, the, the Earth's population has a bit more than doubled, but the number of people that live in poverty is actually smaller than it was back then. And a lot of that was from, uh, especially China, which has a lot of people and somewhat India and other places, turn, turning away from economic policies that caused all that type of destruction. So what I would say to young people, like, if, if you think there's a better way to do it, go go look at the history of, of what happened when people tried that other way and and, and try to understand why that happened. Because the track record is pretty terrible. Um, and unfortunately, in universities, I think, because we're a little ideological, we don't talk about the track records. But you would think a sensible thing would be, hey, you know, in the 20th century, we tried an economic system and it led to poverty and killed at least 100 million people. That's governments killing their own people. Maybe we should learn about that and why that happened. And we, we don't have that class for some reason. But we have lots of classes criticizing kind of capitalism, which has a long history of, of pulling, pulling people out of poverty and making people's lives better, whether they're business owners or not. Um, so I, 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 guess, I guess that's the, the, the message I, I, would, I would leave. Well, you can't leave. Uh, yeah. uh, you can't make much of more of a moral case than um, one side killed over a hundred million people, and one side didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so if if that doesn't ring a moral tone, moral. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what can. And uh, you know, Friedrich Hayek says that economics is the means to every end, and if we hand over um, economic decision making to to a government, to central planners, then yeah. we're giving them the power of the means to every end, which means they can block any end that they don't like for any person, and they can direct anybody to any end they wish. That is handing them the power of totalitarianism. And uh, that's not so frequently, I mean, that's pretty frequently abused. So I would say that's a pretty strong moral case right there is that um, economic freedom does defend um, human freedom and protects uh, human liberty and even human life in the end. Um, well, thanks so much for joining me today. Is there anything else you'd want to add? And of course, um, let them know again um, about your book and where they can find it. Okay. Well, yeah, first of all, th thanks a lot. I, I hope your listeners, um, you know, found the talk useful, enjoy, enjoyed listening. Um, the book, it's up on Barnes and Noble and Amazon. I think, like you said, they maybe it just, it just went on sale a couple of weeks ago and maybe they didn't print enough because for Amazon, it's still, I think you can't get it till after, after Christmas now, but yeah, it's up on Amazon and uh, and Barnes and Noble. There's an electronic book too, um, and so I hope it's. And, and again, I wrote it for the general public, so I wrote it so it's something you could read on an airplane or by the pool. You shouldn't have to pull your hair out to understand this stuff. The stuff isn't that. It's not like overly complicated. Um, and as I said before, I, I think sometimes we academics take these things and make them too complicated. So I tried to do the opposite in this book. I tried to make it something that's hopefully enjoyable uh, to, to read. So if people are interested in it, I, uh, I hope they, they can check it out and enjoy it. Wonderful. Well, I personally suggest reading it out loud and at a university campus yeah. if you can. So it's, it's definitely take the, my advice there, dear listeners. Um, all right. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. And uh, I hope you, uh, you uh, enjoyed this conversation. Those who are listening, I certainly enjoyed the chat. Great. Thank you.